All right, Wrestling With Theology fans, this is Pastor Doug Minton, standing in the confessional corner with you this week to talk to you about the person of Christ, especially as we look at the Formula of Concord, Article 8, the section on the two natures in Christ, looking at paragraphs 32 to 65. We'll be looking, we'll be starting on page 587 in the Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, the Reader's Edition of the Book of Concord. We continue on from the union we talked about last week. This is certainly true. Properties do not leave their subjects. In other words, each nature keeps its essential properties. These are not separated from the nature and poured into the other nature as water from one vessel into another. So there could not be any communion of properties if the personal union or communion of the natures in the person of Christ were not true. Next to the article of the Holy Trinity, this is the greatest mystery in heaven and on earth. Paul says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, 1 Timothy 3, 16. The Apostle Peter testifies in clear words in 2 Peter 1, 4, that we also, in whom Christ dwells only by grace, on account of that great mystery, are partakers of the divine nature in Christ. Therefore, what kind of communion of the divine nature must that be of which the Apostle says, in Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, so that God and man are one person? It is highly important that this doctrine about the communion of the properties of both natures be treated and explained with proper discrimination. There are many ways and modes of speaking about the person of Christ and of its natures and properties. When these are used without proper distinction, the doctrine becomes confused and the simple reader is easily led astray. Therefore, the following explanation should be carefully noted. We'll stop here, although there's still one more half sentence in this paragraph. It goes on into starting off the list of the different ways. But there is a list because, as the Concordists say, this is, outside of the Trinity, the greatest mystery in heaven and on earth. So we have a hard time wrapping our heads around this, just like we have a hard time wrapping our heads around Father, Son, and Holy Spirit being one God, yet three persons. All right, so the purpose of making it plainer and simpler, it may be organized under three headings, and that's what we're going to look at this week. Number one, in Christ, two distinct natures exist and remain unchanged and unconfused in their natural essence and properties, yet there is only one person consisting of both natures. Therefore, that which is an attribute of only one nature is attributed not to that nature alone as separate. Is it attributed to the entire person who is at the same time God and man, whether the person is called God or man? All right, so first and foremost, we need to make sure we understand that there are both the divine and the human nature in Christ. Those two need to be completely expressed and confessed, and that therefore they are they are also one person. And therefore, whether we are talking about Jesus as God or Jesus as man, we are talking about the whole Christ, not trying to pick apart which one is which that we're talking about, whether we're talking about just the divine nature or just the human nature. When we talk about Jesus, when I talk about Jesus in sermons, I am talking about the full Jesus, God and man in flesh. All right, pick back up in paragraph 37. In this way of speaking, it does not make sense that what is attributed to the person is at the same time a property of both natures, but its nature is distinctly explained by what is ascribed to the person. 
So his son was descended from David according to the flesh, Romans 1, 3. Also Christ was put to death in the flesh, 1 Peter 3, 18, and suffered in the flesh, 1 Peter 4, 1. These are all things that we can talk about, yes, and we are specifically talking about the human side of it, but we cannot separate the two. <laughs> However, beneath these words, when it is said that what is peculiar to one nature is attributed to the entire person, secret and open sacramentarians conceal their daily error. They do this by naming the entire person, but meaning only the one nature, and entirely excluding the other. They speak as though the mere human nature had suffered for us, as Dr. Luther in his Confession Concerning Christ's Supper has written about the aliosis of Zwingli. We will present here Luther's own words in order that God's church may be guarded in the best way against this error. So now we have a series of Luther quotes here going against Zwingli and the aliosis. Zwingli calls it aliosis when something is said about the divinity of Christ, which after all belongs to his humanity or vice versa. For example, in Luke 24, 26, was it necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and so enter into his glory? Here Zwingli performs a sleight of hand trick and substitutes the human nature for Christ. Beware, beware, I say of this aliosis, for it is the devil's mask, since it will finally construct a kind of Christ after whom I would not want to be a Christian. That is a Christ who is and does no more in his passion and his life than any other ordinary saint. For if I believe that only the human nature suffered for me, then Christ would be a poor savior for me. In fact, he himself would need a savior. In short, it is indescribable what the devil attempts with his aliosis. And shortly afterward, now if the old witch Lady Reason, Aliosis's grandmother, should say that the deity surely cannot suffer and die, then you must answer and say it is true. But since the divinity and humanity are one person in Christ, the scriptures ascribe to the divinity, because of this personal union, all that happens to humanity and vice versa. And in reality it is so. Indeed, you must say that the person pointed at Christ suffers and dies. But this person is truly God, and therefore it is correct to say the Son of God suffers. Although, so to speak, the one part, namely the divinity, does not suffer, nevertheless the person, who is God, suffers in the other part, namely in the humanity. For the Son of God truly is crucified for us, that is, this person who is God. For that is what he is. This person, I say, is crucified according to his humanity. And again, shortly afterward. If Zwingli's aliosis stands, then Christ will have to be two persons, one a divine and the other a human person, since Zwingli applies all the texts concerning the passion only to the human nature and ex completely excludes them from the divine nature. But if the works are divided and separated, the person will also have to be separated, since all the doing and suffering are not ascribed to natures but to persons. It is the person who does and suffers everything, the one thing according to this nature and the other according to the other nature, all of which scholars know perfectly well. Therefore, we regard our Lord Christ as God and man in one person, neither confusing the natures nor dividing the person, quoting back to the Athanasian Creed. But then Dr. Luther also says in his book on the councils in the church from 1539, we Christians should know that if God is not in the scale to give it weight, we on our side sink to the ground. I mean it this way. If it cannot be said that God died for us, but only a man, we are lost. But if God's death and a dead God lie in the balance, his side goes down and ours goes up like a light in an empty scale. Yet he can also readily go up again or leap out of the scale. 
but he could not sit on the scale unless he became a man like us, so that it could be called God's dying, God's martyrdom, God's blood, and God's death. For God in his own nature cannot die. But now that God and man are united in one person, it is called God's death when the man dies who is one substance or one person with God. Thus far Luther. It is clear that it is incorrect to say or write that the above-mentioned expressions, God suffered, God died, are only verbal assertions, that is, mere words, and that it is not so in fact. For our simple Christian faith proves that God's Son, who became man, suffered for us, died for us, and redeemed us with his blood. So we have here in these quotations from Luther, from his confession on the Holy Supper, and also on the councils in the church, all these things that we cannot say that it is only one or the other. We cannot separate the person. We cannot divide the person, as the Athanasian Creed says. We cannot confuse them as trying to say, well, okay, no, Jesus only died through his human nature, but the divine nature didn't suffer. Well, yes, when you want to take the two of them separately, those are both true statements. But when you have God and man in one person, and the person suffers and dies, the entire person suffers and dies. This goes on to giving the idea, as he says, Zwingli very fanatically says, is that only a man died for you in Jesus. And if only a man died for you, okay, again, he may be able to save one, but there is no hope for you if as Luther says in the councils on the councils in the church, if there is not a dead God holding down the other side of the scale, you know, we come flying up because that weight definitely outweighs all of our sins individually. We can put all of humanity's sins in that, and it is still weighted down on God's side because this is how the forgiveness of sins works. There is always always more grace and mercy and forgiveness than there is sin. And this is what the Concordists have to say about this first section, that we must acknowledge that both the divine and human natures exist in the one Christ. Now, point two here in paragraph 46 and 47 is the shortest of the three points, and really basically just says the same thing over again. In fulfilling Christ's office, the person does not act and work in, with, through, or according to only one nature. It works in, according to, with, and through both natures. As the Council of Chalcedon expresses it, one nature works in communion with the other, what is the property of each. Therefore, Christ is our mediator, redeemer, king, high priest, head, shepherd, and so on, not according to one nature only, whether it be the divine or the human, but according to both natures. This teaching has been treated more fully in other places. This is why this is the short run, is that it's in the middle, so it can be sandwiched between the two longer ones. But it's been talked about and explained, sometimes ad nauseum, elsewhere. But that as Jesus is doing his work of being our Redeemer, our Head, our Mediator, our High Priest, and so on and so forth, he does it as the complete person, God and man. All right, now number three, in paragraph 48, here on page 589. However, it is a much different thing when the question, declaration, or discussion is about whether the natures in the personal union in Christ have nothing else or nothing more than, their, than only their natural essential properties. 
It has been mentioned above that they have and keep these. Regarding the divine nature in Christ and God, there is no change. James 1.17 His divine nature and its essence and properties suffered no subtraction or addition by the Incarnation. It was not in or by itself either diminished or increased by it. Regarding the received human nature in the person of Christ, some have wished to argue that even in the personal union with divinity, it has nothing else and nothing more than only its natural essential properties, according to which it is in all things like its brethren. Hebrews 2.17 On this account, they argue that nothing should or could be attributed to the human nature in Christ that is beyond or contrary to its natural properties, even though the testimony of Scripture speaks this way. This opinion is false and incorrect. This is so clear from God's word that even their own associates rebuke and reject this error. For the Holy Scriptures and the ancient fathers from the Scriptures forcefully testify, the human nature has been personally united with the divine nature in Christ. It is glorified and exalted to the right hand of God's majesty and power. After the form of a servant and humiliation had been laid aside, the human nature did receive, apart from and over and above its natural, essential, permanent properties, special, high, great, supernatural, mysterious, indescribable, heavenly privileges, and excellences in majesty, glory, power, and might above everything that can be named. It has them not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, Ephesians 1.21. So we conclude about the work of Christ's office. The human nature in Christ is equally used at the same time in its measure and mode. It also has its power and efficacy. This is true not only from and according to its natural essential attributes, or only so far as their ability extends, but chiefly from and according to the majesty, glory, power, and might that it has received through the personal union, glorification, and exaltation. Today, even the adversaries can and dare scarcely deny this except they still dispute and contend that those are only created gifts or finite qualities, as in the saints, with which the human nature in Christ is endowed and adorned. According to their thoughts or from their own argumentations or proofs, they want to measure and calculate what the human nature in Christ could or should be capable of or incapable of without becoming annihilated. This goes back to the previous article, Article 7 on the Holy Supper, and how can Jesus, who has a human body, who ascended into heaven bodily, how can he, as a finite human body, be everywhere where the Lord's Supper is being celebrated? Or how can he be on any of the altars here individually, much less all around the world, when he is also still in heaven? Because they want to argue that because of the human nature that we have, regardless of the majesty and the glory and the power and might that has been given to him through the resurrection and the ascension into heaven, that, you know, this is not the way that Jesus can operate. Which is why we have these arguments all the time as to what could or would or should Jesus do. Because we are trying to figure out from our own understanding something that has gone past us, but something that has also been promised to us in our own resurrection. But we will get to that in a different article. Right now we're going to pick up in paragraph 53 as we continue on in our journey through this article. The best, most certain, and surest way in this controversy is this. According to his received human nature, through the personal union, Christ has glorification or exaltation. What his received human nature is capable of beyond the natural properties, without becoming annihilated, no one can know better or more thoroughly than the Lord Christ himself. 
He has revealed this in his word as much as is needful for us to know about in this life. We must simply believe everything for which we have clear, certain testimonies in the scriptures in this matter. We should in no way argue against it as though the human nature in Christ could not be capable of the same. So we have what Jesus says we need to know, and we should be happy with what we need to know. But there are always questions because God made us to be curious creatures. But we ought to firmly hold on to the clear things that Jesus says in the scriptures, even about himself. What has been said about the created gifts that have been given and imparted to the human nature in Christ is indeed correct and true. The nature possesses them in or of itself, but these do not reach the majesty that the scriptures and the ancient fathers from scripture attribute to the received human nature in Christ. To make alive, to have all judgment and all power in heaven and on earth, to have all things in his hands, to have all things subject beneath his feet, to cleanse from sin, and so on, are not created gifts. These are divine, infinite properties. Yet according to the declaration of scripture, these have been given and communicated to the man Christ. See John 5, 27, 6, 39, Matthew 28, 18, Daniel 7, 14, John 3, 35, and 13, 3. Matthew 11, 27, Ephesians 1, 22, Hebrews 2, 8, 1 Corinthians 15, 27, and John 1, 3. All of these things that we praise Jesus for as being God and man are things that cannot happen if he is not both God and man. He cannot have all judgment. He cannot have all things subjected to him. He cannot make alive if he is also not divine and human. The Concordists continue on in paragraph 56. This communication is not to be understood as a phrase or way of speaking, or just words about the person according to the divine nature alone, but according to the received human nature. The following three strong, irrefutable arguments and reasons show this. First, here is a unanimously received rule from the ancient Orthodox Church. Holy Scripture testifies of what Christ received in time. He did not receive according to the divine nature. According to this nature, he has everything from eternity. But the person of Christ has received attributes in time by reason of and with respect to the received human nature. Second, the scriptures testify clearly. First, or John 5, 21 and 27, and then chapter 6, verses 39 and 40. That the power to give life and to execute judgment has been given to Christ because he is the Son of Man and since he has flesh and blood. Third, the scriptures speak not merely in general of the Son of Man, but also indicate clearly his received human nature. The blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sins, 1 John 1, 7. This is true not only according to the merit of Christ's blood that was once attained on the cross, but in this place John means that in the work or act of justification, not only the divine nature in Christ, but also his blood actually cleanses us from all sins. So in John 6, 48-58, Christ's flesh is a life-giving food. The Council of Ephesus also concluded from this statement that Christ's flesh has power to give life. Many other glorious testimonies of the ancient Orthodox Church about this article are cited elsewhere. So these three reasons. Scripture says that Christ received gifts that are strictly from the divine nature, but the divine nature doesn't get them because he has already had them from all of eternity. So he receives these gifts in the human nature. And that Jesus as man, and because he has flesh and blood, has been given the power to give life and to judge the living and the dead. And then 
Thirdly, it is not just the divinity of Jesus that cleanses us from all sins. It is the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. The divine nature does not have blood. The divine nature is spirit, as we talk about many times, and especially in John chapter 4. But the human nature has blood. The human nature has no right to execute judgment, or can it give life to anything? Nor does it have the ability to do any of the miracles that Jesus did. So therefore, we must understand that these things are the way they are because Jesus is both God and man. And you cannot separate the two out of Jesus to say, oh no, he's this right now or he's that right now. All right, let's finish up our reading this week, paragraph 60 to 65. Now Christ, according to his human nature, has received this. It has been given and communicated to the received human nature in Christ. We shall and must believe this according to the scriptures. But as said above, the two natures in Christ are united in such a way that they are not mingled with each other or changed one into the other. Each retains its natural essential property so that the properties of one nature never become the properties of the other nature. Therefore, this doctrine must be rightly explained and diligently guarded against all heresies. We then invent nothing new by ourselves, but receive and repeat the explanations that the ancient Orthodox Church has given about this from the good foundation of the Holy Scripture. This divine power, life, might, majesty, and glory was given to the received human nature in Christ. This did not happen the way the Father from eternity has communicated to the Son, according to the divine nature, his essence and all divine attributes, by which he is of one essence with the Father and is equal to God. For Christ is equal to the Father only according to the divine nature. According to the received human nature, he is beneath God. From this, it is clear that we make no confusion, equalization, or abolition of the natures in Christ. So the power to give life is the same in Christ's flesh as it is in his divine nature, which is where it is an essential property. <laughs> Furthermore, this communication or impartation has not happened through an essential or natural infusion of the properties of the divine nature into the human. In other words, Christ's humanity would not have these by itself and apart from the divine essence, nor has the human nature in Christ entirely laid aside its natural essential properties. It is not transformed into divinity, and in by itself it does not become equal to divinity with these communicated properties, nor does it mean that there should be now identical or equal natural essential properties and operations of both natures. For these and similar erroneous doctrines were rightly rejected and condemned in the ancient approved councils on the basis of Holy Scripture. For in no way is conversion, confusion, or equalization of the natures in Christ or of their essential properties to be made or allowed. We have never understood that the impartation or communion that happens in deed and truth applies to any physical communication or essential transfusion. In other words, we have never talked about an essential natural communion or effusion by which the natures would be commingled in their essence and their essential properties. Some have craftily and wickedly against their own conscience perverted these words and phrases in order to make the pure doctrine suspected. But we have only contrasted these words with verbal communication. We have applied them to this doctrine when such persons assert that it is only a phrase and way of speaking, that is, nothing more than mere words, titles, and names. They have laid aside so much stress on this that they would know of no other communion. Therefore, for the true explanation of Christ's majesty, we have used such terms of real communion. We wanted to show by them that this communion has happened in deed and truth without any confusion of natures and their essential properties. 
This is what we hold and teach in conformity with the ancient Orthodox Church, as is it is explained this teaching from the Scriptures. The human nature in Christ has received this majesty through the personal union. This happened because the entire fullness of the divinity dwells in Christ, Colossians 2.9, not as in other holy men or angels, but bodily, as in its own body. The divinity shines forth with all its majesty, power, glory, and effectiveness in the received human nature. It does this voluntarily when and as Christ wills. In, with, and through the human nature, Christ shows, uses, and acts on his divine power, glory, and efficacy, as the soul does in the body in fire and glowing iron. By means of these illustrations, as also mentioned above, the entire ancient church has explained this doctrine. This power was concealed and withheld at the time of the humiliation, but now, after the form of the servant has been laid aside, it is fully, powerfully, and publicly exercised before all saints in heaven and on earth. In the life to come, we shall also behold his glory face to face. John 17, 24. So as we have here in conclusion, we have all of these things that we've talked about already through this last 25 minutes of this podcast, but also the last couple of weeks as we have gone through, because we have to repeat again and again, because people want to twist our words. So we have to keep saying the same words over again, so that we can drive home our point about what is actually happening in the communion of natures between the divine and the human in the person of Christ. Again, as we started off, this is the greatest mystery outside of the Trinity. And it's a related one, so we cannot wrap our heads around it. We can get close to it, like the iron glowing in fire or the body and soul that we have. But again, those are still somewhat imperfect. They're the closest we can get, but we understand in the grand scheme of things, and Martin Chemnitz writes an entire book on the two natures of Christ, which is rather thick about trying to explain all of this. And maybe later on down the road, maybe we'll get into that. But right now we want to stick with the Concordia, the Book of Concord, to strengthen our faith, to strengthen our understanding of things so that we can wrestle with all the theologies and the people who want to twist our words around and use them to try to say the opposite of what we believe. This is why we get so detailed in the solid declaration, because even among the people in the Lutheran churches in the 16th century, there were these arguments going on just as there are in the 21st century today, which is why we continue to go back to the Book of Concord to see it so that we can again repeat what has been said before so that we can be grounded, so that we can truly understand what God says to us. All right, that's it for this week. Uh, this is Pastor Doug Minton thanking you for being here this week. Come back next week as we continue on in the article on the person of Christ, continuing the communication between the divine and human natures. But until then, may God bless you as you wrestle with the theology around you. Amen.